Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Okay, let's turn to Daniel chapter 9. Let's read the passage again, verse 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, and I want to correct the translation, and 62 weeks. Not a period and not then. This totally interrupts the flow of the language and what is intended here. This is somebody's bias that crept into this translation. Seven weeks and for, and for 62 weeks. No, just and 62 weeks. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. It shall be built again, that is the city of Jerusalem, with squares and a moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off, and there shall be nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now the verse today is the last one. And I told you before this is the hardest verse in the passage. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So this is a time prophecy concerning 70 sevens. It's 490 something. It can't be days. Because the prophecy will not, it doesn't work to make it days. It's years. About every person that I know of, uh, looked at, interprets it that way. 490 years. So this is a time prophecy concerning this duration of time. Remember, this is Gabriel speaking. This is the angel Gabriel. He's giving a message to Daniel in response to Daniel's prayer earlier in the passage. And Gabriel divides this 490-year period, or 70 weeks, into three unequal time periods. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and now in verse 27, we come across one week. Put them all together, we've got 70 weeks. So, so far we've covered verses 24, 25, and 26, that deals with 69 weeks. So we're right on the edge of, okay, well, what, what is in the last week? I, do, I 
Really, when I began this, I did not know how I was going to come out in my interpretation of this passage. Uh, for many years, I've wanted to study the 70 weeks. I was taught a certain way when I went to college, and I've thought about it many times through the years, but I never was motivated to delve in it very much. So I'm a little surprised at how I came out on this, and I feel very good about it. I think it's a, a fairly good interpretation of the, of the text. One thing that's crucial for us to make clear at the beginning is this 490-year period that is divided into three periods is not, those time periods are not to be separated. This is one lump of time, 490 years. All of this occurs in this time period. That's one of the problems I have with the popular belief that this last week of Daniel is still future. That this is the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation. You've all heard of that? Where does that come from? That's the last week of Daniel, 70 weeks. Well, they're separating the 69th week from the 70th week by at least 2,000 years. And I don't think we, ha we can arbitrarily divide it like that. A Hebrew scholar that I read on the Old Testament, Edward J. Young, on Daniel, said here concerning the Hebrew language, the way it is in the Hebrew. He said this is an uninterrupted time period, this 490 years. There's no gaps in there. It can't be arbitrarily divided up like that. So if that's true, then that, that eliminates that interpretation that is so popular today. Well, how are we to look at it then? So there's no question about the first seven weeks has to do with the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. When Daniel wrote this, the city of Jerusalem was in ruins. It had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. He destroyed the city and he destroyed the temple. And from the Daniel 70 weeks, it's going to be destroyed again. The city and the temple are going to be destroyed a second time. They talk about the second temple. When I was in Israel, the second temple and all that. Well, that was the one that was built after the exiles came back from Babylon, from the Persian Empire, and went back to their homeland, and they constructed another temple to replace Solomon's temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. The second one is destroyed as well. This passage tells us. So there's no temple in Jerusalem. Though the space is there, but it's occupied by the Muslims and their mosque. So one of the questions is, okay, well, when does this 490-year period begin? This is one of the questions that is raised here. The question is, when does the 70 weeks begin? Well, he tells us, Gabriel tells us in verse 25, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. That is actually giving us a time, the beginning of the 70 weeks. 
And then he takes it to the coming of a prince. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Or, in other words, 69 weeks from the beginning of whatever date that is to the coming of a prince. You remember we calculated all that and we showed the starting date is right here, 446 B.C. Out of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah went back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and he started with the walls and the gates of the city. And we know what date that was, what year it was, because it says in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. That's a known date in history, 446 or 445, somewhere right in there. That is the starting date of the 70 weeks. So we have a total, 7 weeks and 62 weeks makes 483 years. But you remember all the math that we did? We had to turn those years into biblical or prophetic years of 360 days each year, not 365. So we calculated 483 biblical years at 360 days per year came to this big number of days, 173,880 days. Now to get it back on the Julian calendar where we're going to plot it back on the, 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 the time, I had to turn those days back into 365 days, which were, is a total of 476 years on the Gregorian or Julian calendar. So from 446 all the way 476 years later takes us to 31 A.D., That's the approximate Remember, Again, I'm not being exact here. I'm not trying to prove that he came or appeared on a certain day in history, though there are works that do that. I read a very complicated one by Sir Robert Anderson when I was in school that did that, calculated it to the very day, April 6th or 14th. can't remember what it was. So that's the, that's the life of Christ, isn't it? 31 AD. It says, till he come. So it's not his birth. We're not talking about the birth of Jesus here. We're talking about when he appears as an anointed, that is, the prince. When did he appear as, a, as the prince, the anointed prince, at his baptism? He was in obscurity for 30 plus years. In Nobody knew who he was except his mom and dad. Then his baptism, that's the beginning of his earthly ministry. So this is somewhere around the baptism of Jesus, 31 AD. So that's the 69 weeks. So we're now we're through verse 25. Now verse 26, remember it says, And after 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off. After 62 weeks, that put us in the, that's in the 70th week. So we covered this already. This is what I just explained. We're up to week 69 right there, 31 AD. But we still have one week left. But verse 
26 is very important because of this word after. After 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. That means subsequent to the 69th week, when he appears as anointed, the anointed one, he's cut off. Now we know that that's his death. But the prophecy doesn't tell, at this point, does not tell us when he's cut off. It simply says after he's cut off. So this little word puts us over here in the, this is, this line right here represents the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. The one week is represented here. Somewhere, some, at some point in time in this week, the Messiah dies. Verse 26 doesn't tell us that. Verse 27 does. This is the importance of what we're going to read now. And it describes the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, also after the 69th week. But we're not told when. In fact, it doesn't tell us when exactly. We learn when from history. So the 69 weeks have been accounted for, those events. Now we have the remaining one week. This is the third period, the one week, to understand what's happening. So what happens in this one week? Well, he tells us there's a couple of things that happen. Notice he confirms the covenant with many for one week. The question is, who is the he? Those who take the view that there's a 2,000-year gap between week 69 and week 70, and they put the 70th week, still future, that's the seven-year tribulation, they say the he is the Antichrist. So the Antichrist is in verse 27. I'll tell you why that cannot be. Because he, and, and they say he makes a truce, or a covenant with the Jews. So this is how they explain, he shall make a covenant with many for one week. The problem is, this word covenant in the book of Daniel, it's used seven times. In all the other instances, it's referring to God's covenant with his people. It's several times in the 11th chapter, which we'll come to when we deal with chapter 11. This, this has to do with God's covenant with his ancient people. Not a covenant that the future Antichrist makes with the Jewish people. That puts it in a very bad light because this prince who is to come, he's involved in desecrating the temple. It's all negative that he does. He brings desolation and destruction to the Jewish people. Now, that is in the text, but that it's clearly the work of the prince that shall come who does that. And we'll see that in a moment, who that is. Now, this is, this is the covenant, this is the ancient covenant that God made with his people, Israel. The Abrahamic covenant. And this covenant is confirmed by the he. These are the the blessings of God's mercy that are promised in the covenant. You might look at verse 24, those, those 
several of those things there that are mentioned, to finish, to put an end to sin, make atonement for iniquity, that's all part of God's covenant with his people. These are the blessings of the covenant that he makes. The main person, the central person that this text is about is the anointed one, the prince. It's Jesus Christ who is the central figure here. It's looking forward to him. And I believe this is referring to Jesus. It's Jesus Christ who makes, he can, he, notice, it's not that he makes a covenant, he confirms the covenant. That, that language is important here. That's the meaning. Of, our translation is he shall make a strong covenant, but it's the making strong is the idea of making it firm or confirming it. It's not the idea of making a covenant for the first time. It's the idea of confirming a covenant that had already been established, already been made, but now it's being confirmed or ratified. This is crucial to understanding verse 27. And notice, okay, so the two events mentioned in the 70th week right at the beginning is he confirms the covenant with many. Notice that language. In the original, we got a definite article, and it's actually with the many. With the many. In other words, this is not an undefiable group, just kind of a general many, but this is a specific term that is used in both Old and New Testament to refer to God's people. Isaiah 53, 12, he bore the sin of many. Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. So he's making a covenant or confirming the covenant with the many. And notice that this confirmation of the covenant is for the entire week of seven years. Not making a covenant, but it's confirmed. This is with God's people. I would say in a general sense with Israel, but the elect of God within the nation Israel. It pertains, this prophecy pertains to Daniel's people and to their city. It said that in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So we have to think of in terms of Israel, primarily, is in view here. God's dealings with the nation. Look what happens after the confirmation of the covenant with many for one week. It says in, and I'm going to give the NASB translation, because again, this is, it's a little awkward the way it's worded in the ESV. It says, and for half of the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. Here it is in the New American Standard Bible. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and offering. In the middle of the seven-year period, he puts an end to the sacrifice and offering. About how far are we into the 70th week there? Well, clearly three plus years, three and a half years, if you want to be exact. How long was the ministry of Jesus? 
There's possibly four Passovers that he observed that can be traced in the four Gospels, which means that he, his ministry was longer than three years, but maybe not a full four years. So the scholars say the ministry of Jesus was approximately three and a half years. So if he came and revealed himself, uh, launched his ministry as the anointed one at his baptism, week 69 or week 62, after week 62 it says, and after that week he's cut off, but we don't know when. Here it's telling us when he's cut off, halfway into the 70th week. And how do we know that? Because notice what happens when he's cut off. A great change takes place. In the middle of the week, I'll read it to you in the NIV, in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. So a change takes place in the middle of the week, that is. What what change took place? The cessation of the sacrificial system in the temple. It ended. He ended it. When did Jesus end the sacrifices? Well, as death. He gave a, a visible demonstration of that. Matthew alone records it. I mentioned it last week. Those of you who weren't here, Matthew 27 and verse 51 says, After Jesus died. The veil that hung in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. That was the veil that kept people out of the most holy place, where the high priest went once a year with the blood of a sacrifice to make atonement. That was was torn. God himself tore the veil to show now the way into his presence is open to everyone. Book of Hebrews capitalizes on that in Hebrews chapter 10 and tells us more about that. That we have access now behind the veil. The veil is torn because we don't need a physical sacrifice anymore. Those sacrifices could never put away sin. They were inadequate. They were fine for the time. God appointed it in the meantime, but... They were, all with, they were all done with the view that the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, was coming into the world who would ultimately and finally deal with sin once and for all by his one sacrifice on the cross. The death of Messiah occurs in the middle of the week. It fits beautifully because Jesus' ministry was about, was over three years. So he appeared as Messiah At his baptism, three years later, he dies. That's when he's cut off, and that's when the sacrifice ends. He put an end to sin. Now, what does all that mean? What's this seven-year covenant that he makes with his people? What is that all about? Well, I want you to think with me for a few, few minutes. Remember that Jesus said that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew's gospel, which is the gospel to the Jew. 
He said twice, chapter 10, he told the apostles when he sent them out two by two, he said, do not go to any Gentile city. He forbade them to go to the Gentiles. You're only to go to Israel. Later in the Matthew's Gospel, when the lady came from the area of Tyre and Sidon, north of Israel, she was from a Gentile area, she had heard about him. And she came seeking the Jewish wonder worker because she had a daughter that was demon-possessed. Matthew 15 talks about it. And remember what, how he treated her? He ignored her to begin with. And then he insulted her and he said it's not fit to throw the children's crumbs to dogs. Quite an account. But he, at the same time, he was drawing her faith out as an illustration to the disciples of what true faith is. But in that context of dealing with her, he also told her, I am not sent to anyone but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, his three and a half year ministry, was primarily for them, the Jewish people. And one way to look at that ministry is that he is confirming the covenant of God with them during that time. He's fulfilling the promises of God. Now, in the middle of the week, when he dies, he's cut off, and the sacrifice system ends. What happened the night before he, was, before he went to the cross? What was he doing? He was instituting the Lord's Supper. There's four accounts of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. John's Gospel does not give us the account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, and then Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11, the text I always read when we have the Lord's Supper. In all the accounts, it's couched in what terms, what language? It's the covenant. Remember? This is my blood in the covenant shed for many for the remission of sins. In other words, the, and what covenant is it? Well, it's the new covenant that God promised that he was going to make with the house of Israel, and the house of Judah. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Repeated in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8 and chapter 10, where they quote the same passage. This is the covenant God made with his ancient people being reaffirmed, confirmed again, but here it's actually ratified. Here is the basis of it. The new covenant rests on the death and sacrifice of the anointed one. This is what puts it into effect. That God will remember our sins no more. So it's all in terms of the covenant. Okay, so the Lord Jesus Christ dies. He's confirmed the covenant in his earthly ministry of three and a half years. He did the wonderful thing of giving us the Lord's table in the midst of celebrating the Passover feast. Well, what about the other three and a half years? This is the work that was prosecuted by the apostles after his resurrection. They continued 
ministry to God's people, the Israel of God. Um, Because what's interesting is the time frame. Because when we're looking at the time frame of seven years from 31 A.D., we're into, you know, 38 A.D., approximately, around there. And this is plus or minus a year or two, okay? We're not being exact, but I'm giving you an approximate. When when we, we went through the book of Acts, so you might remember how the... What was the original church that was planted? It was the Jewish church. Acts chapter 1 began with 120 souls. That's that's all the fruit Jesus had at the end of three and a half years of ministry. Only 120 people assembled for worship in Jerusalem. (laughs) But when the day of Pentecost came, ten days later after his ascension... The church grew by another 3,000. And then a chapter or two later, it's now 5,000, just counting the men. And then Luke loses track, and he just says myriads, multitudes. This is the Jerusalem church. This is all Jewish. Then there's a transition from away from Israel to the Gentiles. And it actually begins with the martyrdom of Stephen, which, by the way, is the last place in the book of Acts where it mentions covenant. The covenant is never mentioned again in the book of Acts after chapter 7. Kind of interesting to me. But Stephen mentions it in his amazing sermon that stirred up such animosity against him that they threw him out of the city and then stoned him to death. But... Why was Stephen's death so critical? Because of the young man Saul that was there witnessing this whole thing, who then carried on the persecution, which led in chapter 8 of Acts to Philip the Evangelist going out of Jerusalem with the gospel to the Samaritans. And then you come to chapter 9, and you have the conversion of Saul, and in the next chapter, Peter... And his mission to Cornelius. This is the transition in the early chapters of Acts away from strictly Israel to the Gentile world. And that all happened early. That happened in, the date I read was 36. I'm putting it, you could put another year or two on that. So this is how I'm, I'm seeing it that this was the ongoing confirmation of God's promises to Israel, the focus of the ministry of the apostles. The Lord Jesus Christ first, then the apostles who carried on the same work. Where did Jesus tell them to begin their work? In Acts chapter 1. You shall be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So there was... There was this gradual expansion, and that's exactly how the book of Acts unfolds in that order. So that explains, for my, to my own satisfaction, the meaning of he shall make a covenant for one week. And in the middle of the week, the sacrifices stop. Okay, now we're concerned with the rest of the verse. 
This is also very strange language. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. This is talking about the same person mentioned in verse 26, the prince who will who shall come, and he will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who was that? That was the general of the Roman army known as Titus. Titus later become, became the emperor of Rome. His father, presently, when he was a general of the Roman army, his father was Vespasian. He was one of the Roman emperors. He reigned for 10 years. He died in 79 AD. But he charged his son, Titus, with putting down the revolt of the Jews in Judea. Because they were revolting against Rome. They were having a problem with them. So he sent Titus and the army into Jerusalem. He sacked Jerusalem and burnt the temple to the ground. This is what Titus did. Verse 26 told us that. But now there's more information about him. Because now it's going to talk about what a terrible thing he did in the temple. This is the abomination of desolation that Daniel the prophet speaks of. And who told us later about the abomination of desolation? Call that language? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. His abomination that makes desolate. Notice it's described as the wing of abominations. The Hebrew word for wing is actually the appendage of a bird. It's, actually, it's talking about a wing, used ten times in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament. What, what is this talking about? This is, this is the interesting thing about it. The Romans had a military ensign, a pole that they took. It was their standard, a military standard, and it had an emblem on it. That emblem was an eagle with outstretched wings, kind of like what's on our coinage. An eagle with outstretched wings, this was symbolic of the speed, the skill, the power of the Roman army. And they carried this ensign when they went into warfare. And they carried this into the temple upon conquering the Jews. But it also stood for their god, Jupiter. It symbolized their deity. And in the temple, this was brought into the temple. It was, sacrifices were offered to it. But let me just, let me also tell you what Titus himself did. This comes out of Encyclopedia. He entered the area of the Holy of Holies. He spread out a scroll of the law and then had intercourse with two prostitutes that he brought into the temple. This is Titus. After that, he reviled and blasphemed the God of Israel, 
boasting that he had vanquished the king in his own palace. This is Titus. Jewish tradition says that Titus was plagued by God after this. He was cursed and he was judged in a very strange way. A gnat. Now, there's, there's differences of opinion on this, and there's, they speculate about how he died. Some say, oh, he just died of a fever. Others say he was poisoned by his brother Domitian, who was found to actually be plotting against his brother to kill him. But this is the Jewish tradition. A gnat flew up his nose and got into his brain and did something and grew a large something in his brain that eventually killed him. That's why he only lived at age 41, and he only reigned for two years, 79 to 81 A.D., after his father died, Vespasian. This is Titus. And before he died, he commanded that his remains be burned and be scattered on the seven seas because he did not want the God of the Jews to find him and bring him to trial. This is the abomination that desolates, or let me explain what that is. Some terrible thing, an abomination in the Bible is the language that is used for something that is so horrible, so despicable in God's eyes. And usually it's related to an image, an idol, to false worship, to offering a sacrifice to a false god. Those kind of things are put in the category of abomination. So this is what the Romans did, led by Titus, to the Jewish sanctuary. That made the sanctuary unfit for worship. He totally desecrated it. He made it desolate in more ways than one. Not only desolating it by burning it to the ground, but by bringing such horrific contamination in God's eyes and desecration that it just it ruined the temple at that point. The abomination shall come one who makes desolate on the wing of abominations. This is confirmed by Josephus. He said, Upon the burning of the holy house itself and all the buildings round about it, the Romans brought in their ensigns into the temple and set them over against the eastern gate. And, and, and there they did offer sacrifices to them. That's quoting the first century Jewish historian Josephus. So I'm not making this up. I'm explaining to you from what the record has. So he makes it desolate, all these horrible things. Now let's look at the rest of the verse. On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed in is poured out on the desolator. So the decreed, the idea of the decree, again, is what God has planned and purposed, what God has determined. God has, de God has decreed the end of Titus, the end of this horrific 
uh, desecration that was done to his sanctuary until the decreed in, notice this language, is poured out on the desolator. That idea of pouring out, just think of Sodom and Gomorrah, when fire and brimstone was poured out on those cities. This is the idea of God's wrath that's being operated here. And God's judgment comes upon him. Now, that whole section, you don't have to fit that into the 70th week. It doesn't fit into the 70th week. When did it occur? Well, one generation later. The 70th week is in the 31 through 38 A.D. Titus came in 70 A.D., and that's when he destroyed. Actually, he came a few years before that and laid siege on Jerusalem. But the actual destruction of the temple was 70 A.D. That's the date for the destruction of the temple. So these are events that occur after the 70th week. These events there also were predicted by Jesus. So when he is warning his people about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, he says to them, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let those that are in the city flee to the mountains. So he's, the Lord was warning his generation of the coming destruction of Titus. But it was for several years, but it still was going to be in the lifetime of some of the people he was speaking to. Well, we're done with Daniel's 70 weeks. That's an amazing prophecy to me because of the, the detailed nature of this and how accurate it was fulfilled in history. This shows us that our God is a God of <laughs> precision. His word is amazing in how he opens the future to us in detail. When he talked about the destruction of Tyre, for example, and Ezekiel, <laughs> he says uh, the ruins of Tyre are going to be scraped off into the ocean, into the sea, and fishermen will lay their nets on the rocks that are left. That's exactly what happened to Tyre. This is how specific the prophecies are in the Bible. Alexander the Great scraped the ruins off of Tyre and scraped them into the sea to make a causeway out to an island where the people who lived in the original Tyre had moved into the Mediterranean. And they thought that they were out of reach of the great Alexander. Uh, Grecian conqueror. And he said, no, we're going to make a, a causeway out. And he, it was the ruins of the old city. And Ezekiel told us that that was going to happen about 300 years before Alexander came into history. It's, it, this is the word of God. Amen. This is the Bible. Right. If you have any doubt about the Bible being the word of the living God, look at the accuracies with which God knows the future. Now, I know we've had many people come on the scene who claim to be fortune tellers. Edgar Casey was somebody that was alive when I was young who made predictions that appeared in various magazines and so on. They, some of the things are so vague they can kind of get them right. 
but not, not 100% and not very specific. Not like the Bible. Because Yahweh knows the future. He knows, he knows what's coming because he planned it. He willed it, therefore, he, and he knows it because he willed it. It's his plan that's unfolding. So he, that prophecy is telling us future history before it happens. This is how you're to view prophecy. He's, he's telling us what the future is before it occurs. And this is always the test of whether a prophet is a true prophet of God. Many claim to be spokesmen for God, that they are his messenger. Okay, put that to the test. If they make one mistake, if they were living in the Old Testament under Moses, they, God's people would have to kill somebody. They were to endure the death penalty for speaking in God's name as a supposed prophet. It was not allowed. It was not tolerated. There have been many false prophecies made in recent days concerning the presidency, the past president, for example. Some in the church saying thus and such is going to happen. It's a false prophecy. The Bible is uh, wonderful that way. It's one of the things. That I don't believe the Bible because of prophecy. That's not why I believe it. It's one of the things that confirms it to be God's word. These, these are things for you as his child to strengthen your faith, to just confirm you in your faith. But the real reason we believe the Bible is the word of God, because the Holy Spirit has authenticated it to us. In a certain way, it's kind of what the Mormons claim. <laughs> they all say the same thing. Do you have any? Do you want to know if the Book of Mormon is really the Book of Mormon? Well, you pray this certain prayer, and this feeling comes over you. Well, you know, there's there's a certain element of truth in that for God's people, because God does authenticate His Word to His people in their hearts. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't have to be told about all the prophecies that have been fulfilled or anything like that to believe in the Bible or the accuracy of archaeology and all that. Just as a little side note to end this series. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.